We could think of the Christian life as a journey. Paul Bunyan did that when he wrote his allegory, A Pilgrim's Progress. And from our perspective, that journey begins with putting our faith in Jesus. The journey begins when we meet Jesus and come to understand what he has done for us and believe him and put our trust in him. But that's only the beginning of the journey. That's only the beginning of our life with Christ. Or that's only the beginning of our life in Christ. It's one thing to meet Jesus. It's another thing to get to know him. It's one thing to receive God's grace. It's another to 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace. It's one thing to know enough about Christ to trust him for salvation. But it's another thing to know enough about Christ to trust him through life's trouble and through life's trials. So for those of you who are here and are Christians, we are all at different points along that journey. So how well do you know Christ today? Or here's another way to ask that. Do you know Jesus better today than you did a year ago? I bet that there are certain friends that you know better today than you knew a year ago. You might know your spouse better. You might know certain school subjects or ideologies. I'm sure that you know more today than you did a year ago about your favorite sports and hobbies. But what about Christ? Do you know him more fully than you knew him a year ago? Have you grown in your knowledge of him? I hope that you are not indifferent to knowing Christ. I hope that you are interested in more than salvation. I hope that you're not just interested 
in knowing enough to be safe, in knowing enough to be saved. I hope that you want to know Christ. Sadly and foolishly, many seem content to pursue Christ only to a point for salvation's sake. And then, once assured that they're saved, to exchange him for earthly pursuits. Do you want to be content in life? Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to be joyful? Do you want to know joy? Do you want to glorify God? Then you must know Christ. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That is your life's pursuit. Not the power, not the earthly wisdom, not the wealth, but understanding and knowing God. And that is exactly what Paul wanted for the Ephesians. And so we're not surprised when we hear that that is his prayer for them that we'll read today. That they would know and understand God. So let's begin by praying together that God would help us to know him. Our Father in heaven, as we read your word today, Would you help us to know you and understand you? That we would give you the sincere praise that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 917. Thank you so much, those of you who've been praying for our family and praying especially for our 12-year-old Blaze. We had a scary eight days in the hospital, and we have uh, a lot of recovery ahead of us, but Blaze is feeling better, he's looking better, and he is getting better. We had one interaction with one specialist this past week, and she could not take her eyes off of Blaze, 
and was saying over and over again how amazed she was at his eyes recovery. And she didn't understand how that had happened. Of course, we understood. And all of you understand. So if you've been praying for him, you were part of that. So thank you. Two weeks ago, we began our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And he began, you'll remember, in verses 3 through 14 with one long sentence. One long sentence that was overwhelming us with how great God is and how great his love for us is. And we learned that our salvation was planned by God the Father. It was purchased by God the Son. And it is preserved by God the Spirit. And now this morning we move into Paul's next sentence. That's right, this is another long sentence in the Greek that spans verses 15 through 23. And in this long sentence, Paul is praying. He is writing out his prayer that the Ephesians would come to know God more fully. The sentence could be divided into two sections. The cause of Paul's prayer, we're told in verses 15 and 16, and then the actual content of Paul's prayer in verses 17 through 23. So let's look first at the cause of Paul's prayer, the reason this is why he's praying. And we're told in verse 15 and verse 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, in my prayers. The cause for this prayer is the faith and love of the Ephesians. Paul has not only heard of their faith in Jesus, but also their love toward all the saints. That is, their love for one another, which is evidence that their profession of faith is sincere. Their love for one another is evidence of their love for God. 1 John 4, 7 tells us this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So our love as Christians for other Christians, our love for the family of God, which is a special particular love that we have, that is evidence, according to 1 John, that we have been born again, that we know God. And so Paul gets word from this town, this church where he ministered. He gets word of their faith, but not only their profession of faith, the evidence of that faith. 
in their love for one another. And so that prompts him to pray. If you are a Christian, then you are, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation. You're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. For those of you who came to faith later in life, you likely know a stark contrast. You can remember and see the difference between the old and the new. If you've been raised by God's grace in a Christian home, or you're young now and love Jesus, or you've loved Jesus as long as you can remember, you may not have that stark difference in your mind. That's a good thing. Paul understood the difference. Many of these Ephesians understood the difference. Many of you understand the difference. You as a Christian have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal of your salvation, and he works in you to change you. He changes you. And one of the things that he changes in you is your affections. When you become a Christian, and as you mature as a Christian, what you love changes. As Christians, we love God. We love His Word. We love His worship. And we love His people. There is a love for the people of God that we would not have if we had not been born of God. And this is the kind of love for one another that Paul hears of in the Ephesians and causes him to pray. And so what does he do, we're told here, what does he do when he hears about the Ephesians and their faith in Jesus and their love for one another? And it is noteworthy that he doesn't thank them. Their love for one another, obviously, it was remarkable. The way they cared for one another, the way they provided for one another, the way they took care of one another, the way they loved one another, it was so remarkable that it got to Paul. And you might think that Paul would thank them for that. It was something good, of course, that they were doing. But he does not thank the Ephesians. What does he do? Paul thanks God. Well, why would Paul thank God? Well, remember what Paul had just talked about in the verses right before. It was God who predestined them to adoption. It was God who chose to save them. It was God who sent his son to die for them. It was God who sent the Holy Spirit to call them and to seal them and to change them so that, among other things, they would love one another. So who should be thanked when they were loving one another? God should be thanked. God should be praised. But now we'll see. He doesn't just thank God for them. He prays for them. 
I assume this is what you do for people you love. You have your list, right? Family, friends, church members, people that are in your thoughts and prayers, and you probably thank God for them a lot. But you don't just thank God for them. You have desires for them. You have things that you hope for them and things that you want for them. And so what do you do? You pray for them. And so that's what Paul does. In verses 17 through 23, he petitions God to do something for the Ephesians. So what does he petition them to do? That brings us to the content of Paul's prayer This is in verses 17 through 23. Let's look together. We already read in verse 16, Paul said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that, now beginning in verse 17, here's what he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Pause. Do you see or hear what Paul is praying for? Knowledge. Look at the end of verse 17. Knowledge of Him. That is God. He's praying that the Spirit who indwells them would bring them wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that the light of God would shine in their hearts, that they would see what they otherwise would not see, that they would be enlightened, that they would be illuminated, that they would be given from God knowledge, what knowledge? Knowledge of Him. Paul does not pray that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of philosophy or history or science. There's nothing wrong with knowledge of those things, but they are secondary. Paul prays for them, and Paul would pray for you that they would know God. There shouldn't be anything you want more for those you love than that they would know God. That may not be, and surely won't be, all they know, or all that you even want them to know. But you know That if they don't know God, they don't know anything. 
Samuel Lewis Johnson wrote, That's God's world, science, history, philosophy, but the most significant thing is the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. How shallow a man is when he only knows science, or when he only knows history, or when he only knows philosophy and does not know Christ. He is not able, really, to put it all together. That's why the world is seeking, constantly seeking, in constant anxiety, because they don't know him. This is the knowledge that you truly need. Not knowledge of business or politics or golf or cooking or football or Star Wars or fitness or baseball or carpentry. I'm trying to equally offend everybody here. I hit my buttons and hopefully I hit your buttons. You need to know God. There's nothing wrong with knowing other things. But if you don't know God, you don't know anything. And so this is Paul's prayer for those he loves. That they would know God. And as a reminder, we're of course not just looking for Head knowledge. This is relational knowledge. In other words, these aren't truths about God that you merely know about. They are truths about God that you come to know by experience. You don't just read and come to understand that God is good. You come to know in your life that God is good. You don't just read that God is dependable. You come to know in your life that God is dependable. You don't just read that God loves you. You come to know in your life that God loves you. You, as Psalm 34, 8 says, you taste and see that the Lord is good. It is one thing to say there is honey in that jar because the label says so. It is another thing to say there is honey in that jar because you've tasted it. And this is the knowledge of God. We read... God's word, his revelation to us, and we come to know who God is. And then in this journey that is our life with Christ, we come to know this in our life. This is what Paul wants for the Ephesians. It's what he wants for us. So let's keep reading. Paul prays that they would know three things. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's an important list. We don't know the specific reasons. Paul doesn't tell us why he wanted the Ephesians to know these things. We know that we want those who we love, and of course we want for ourselves to know God. 
That there may be times and seasons where there are particular truths about God or attributes of God that we need to grow in our knowledge of. So for the Ephesians at this time, he's got three things. The first two are very brief, while he emphasizes the third. So let's look at each of them, and with the Spirit's help, we'll understand them. Number one, their hope. Paul prays that they would know the hope to which God had called them. Verse 18, the middle of verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I believe this hope is what Paul had just explained in those previous verses. That they would come to know this hope. Let me read them again. Here's verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul prays that these Christians would know this hope, that they wouldn't just read about it, but that they would know this hope to which God had called them. I pray that you would know the hope to which God has called you. Number two, their value. I didn't see this at first. This came later in the week when my understanding of what Paul says here sharpened up. Paul prays that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Look at the end of verse 18, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So see that Paul is not talking about our inheritance. He was in verse 11. But God's inheritance, his glorious inheritance. Our inheritance is one thing, and we talked about that two weeks ago, but what is God's inheritance? What is God's inheritance? What is God's glorious inheritance? Look at verse 18. In the saints, according to verses 3 through 14, we are God's inheritance. We are God's chosen people, aren't we? We have been adopted to be his people, into his family. 
his portion. Scripture says elsewhere, his treasured possession. We delight in God, and God also delights in us. We are God's inheritance through whom he will display his infinite glory. To know this is to know our value and our worth to God. We sung about this in one of our songs this morning. What our worth and value is not rooted in and what it is rooted in. Peter O'Brien in his commentary writes, that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. As from the beginning, he chose them in Christ. As a consequence then, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate the extraordinary value which God places on them. He views them as in his own beloved son and estimates them accordingly. And this is true of all who are in Christ. Paul prays then, secondly here, that we would know how precious we are in God's sight. His glorious inheritance in the saints. I pray that we would know how precious we are in God's sight. How valuable and precious we are in God's sight. How great is the love that he has lavished on us. How great is God's love for us. So great that he would send his only son to die and pay the price of ransom so that we could be redeemed. Finally, there is one more thing that Paul prays the Ephesians would know, and he spends several sentences here, and it is, number three, their power. Paul prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Look at verse 19. That you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul prays that we would know God's great power at work within us. And then we'll see in the following verses that he reminds us of the kind of power we're talking about. 
What kind of power is this? It's of immeasurable greatness, we're told. But then he goes on to describe what kind of power this is that is toward us who believe. In the Old Testament, when God wanted to remind his people of his power, do you remember what he would do? He would point them back to their rescue from Egypt, specifically the parting of the Red Sea. Because that is a display of awesome power to to part an ocean so that his people could move from one side to the other. And so to remind them of his power, he would remind them that he rescued them from Egypt and parted the Red Sea. In the New Testament, it changes, doesn't it? God, when he wants to remind Christians, when he wants to remind his people of his power, he points them back to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Parting an ocean is amazing. And this is all outside our abilities. But it pales in comparison to raising Christ from the dead. And so he describes this power. So let's together be reminded of this power. It is the same power, he says, according to. He's reminding us what this power is, what it's like. According to, number one, it raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 19 and 20. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is the resurrection of Jesus. There is no greater miracle than the resurrection of Jesus. It had never been done before. It has never been done since. Jesus performed many miracles when he was on earth. He took blind men and made them see. He took deaf people and made them hear. He took those who were lame and made it so they could walk. When Jesus was dead, he couldn't see, he couldn't hear, he couldn't walk. And in raising Jesus from the dead, his sight was restored, his hearing was restored. He walked out of that tomb, his soul was reunited to his body, and he was raised from the dead. We can't fathom what it takes to do that. We can't even imagine or perceive how that could be possible. It is beyond our comprehension. And it was reality in Christ. So number one, this power raised Jesus from the dead. It is the same power that number two, seated him at the right hand of God. End of verse 20 and verse 21. And... Seated him. So not just raised Jesus from the dead, but then seated him at God's right hand in the heavenly places far above 
all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is the ascension of Jesus. He was raised from the dead, never to die again, and then he was ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That is unfathomable power. And it is the same power that is toward us who believe. And it is the same power that, number three, put all things under his feet. Verses 22 and 23 And he put all things under his feet, that is, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I am of the understanding that we will be getting to know the glory of God forever. I don't think that once we're resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth, we know and understand all there is to know and understand. I think we will forever be coming to understand the glory of God. And I can tell you right now that I barely understand the depths that are in those verses that I just read today. God gave Christ as head over all things to the church. And then here we go, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's too many alls there for me to get a hold of it. This is the appointing of Jesus as ruler over all. When it says that God the Father put all things under his feet, this is the king who after conquering his enemy, the enemy king would sometimes come and lie down in front of the conquering king and he would rest his feet on his back. It is subordinates lining up under a superior officer. And this is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at God the Father's right hand, and put all things under his feet. That is, all power in the universe belongs to Christ. In his famous speech at the Free University in 1880, Abraham Kuyper said famously, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not cry out, mine. And R.C. Sproul said there is not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. It is all subject to God. What power. 
Psalm 8, 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Paul prays that these Christians would know the immeasurably great power toward us who believe. I pray you would know the same power as well. Power to fight sin. Power to be humble. Power to love. Power to praise God. Power to endure trials. Power to forgive. Only by Christ who strengthens us with his immeasurably great power. In conclusion, hopefully you know more about God than you did 45 minutes ago. But what does that matter? Remember, there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Everyone on earth who has natural ability knows about God. All you need to be able to do is see a star and you know about God, or to see a sunrise and you know about God, or to look up at the Sierra Mountains and you know about God. But that is one thing. It is another to know God. Satan, we're told, knows a lot about God. His demons know a lot about God. I venture to say he may know more than many of you know about God. But he does not know God. He does not know Christ as his Savior. He does not know him as his Lord. He does not know God as his friend. He does not know him as his comforter. But you, Christian, you do. You, by God's grace, you know God. And here you are on this journey... And Paul would pray for you, and I would pray for you, and you would pray for those that you love, that you would gain more and more knowledge about God. But what will you do with that knowledge? Christian, what is that knowledge for? It's not for knowledge's sake. It's not so that you can interject quotes into conversations and people go, wow. (laughs) It's not just to amass information. This knowledge that Paul is praying that we would have, that I would pray that you would have, it is for something. And you know the big answer to that question. What is it for? What is everything for? The glory of God. That you would come to know God and know his beauty and know his glory and you'd praise him. You would exalt him. 
you would obey him. You would love him. You would trust him. So finally, this would be my encouragement to myself, to you, to all of us. Two things. Number one, I would encourage you to pray and thoughtfully read God's word. To pray and to thoughtfully read God's word. 1 Corinthians 2.12, we learn that we understand what God has freely given us. We only understand that by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as Paul prayed here for the Ephesians, illuminates God's word. Enlightens our hearts. Helps us to discern what is only spiritually discerned. So, don't read God's word without praying that God would help you to understand his word, that he would help you to know God and then thoughtfully read God's word. And that word thoughtfully is really important. That means think about what you are reading. Don't just read to read. Don't just read to pat yourself on the back. Don't just read to check off that you had your quiet time today. Thoughtfully read. That means you need to read God's word, whether it's a sentence whether it's a paragraph, whether it's a chapter, whatever it is, but you need to think about what it is that you are reading. Some of you have a wide bandwidth and some of you have a narrow bandwidth. Some of you I'm amazed at how much word you can take in, although sometimes I question whether you're actually thinking about anything that you're listening to or reading. But my bandwidth, I tell you, it's really narrow. I can read about a verse or a few verses a day. And that's about all I can handle. And if I start reading something else, it crowds out the first thing I read. And then I read the third thing, and it crowds out the first and the second thing. And so what ends up happening is I don't actually thoughtfully read anything. So I would appeal to you. Pray and ask for God's help and then thoughtfully read his word. Thoughtfully listen to his word. Thoughtfully listen to a sermon and think about what you are hearing. And then number two, respond. Respond. Sometimes you're going to read that verse or you're going to read those verses and you're going to come to understand something and you're going to have this lump in your throat. And you're going to have this pit in your stomach. And you're going to be convicted of sin. So how do you respond? Confess. And ask God to forgive you. Set your heart and mind to change. Sometimes you're going to read God's word and you're going to be encouraged. You're going to read a promise as if you read it for the first time. And you're going to be filled with joy. And you should thank God. Sometimes you're just going to be barely hanging on. 
just barely hanging on. And you don't feel like you can take five more steps forward and you're going to read something in God's word and it's going to help you move five steps forward. Step six, who knows? It's tomorrow's grace. So we read God's word thoughtfully and then ask yourself, God, what would you have me do in response to your word? Is there a sin I need to confess? Is there a command that I need to obey? Is there a promise that I need to hold on to? God, what, what is it that I do now in response to your word? This morning, we respond by taking the Lord's Supper together. Make this meaningful. Think about what it is that we're doing. This is our great opportunity, only one time a week, to come together as a family, all adopted into God's family, and to stand before him and to stand before one another And to remember how we got here. And that is by the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so we slow down. And we think and we consider what it is that we're doing today. And then we eat of the bread and then we drink of the cup. You're invited to take communion if you are a baptized believer. If you have turned from your sin and you have placed your faith in Christ for salvation, you've committed yourself to him and, of course, to his body whether that's this local church or another local church that preaches the same gospel. We're going to have leaders up front to serve you. We ask you to come forward in the center aisles and then take that bread and juice back to your seat, pause, and then we'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that we would, that we have come to know our Savior, that we've come to know you, that we've come to place our faith in you. We see this as a gift from you, God. Now we ask that you would give us knowledge, that you would, God, help us to know the hope to which you've called us. Help us to know your glorious inheritance in us. Help us to know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.